to the Series B Show With your host, Brandon Jones Welcome to the Series B Show With your host, Brandon Jones Welcome to part two of the Jeff Clavier episode of the Series B Show uh, Hosted by me, Brandon Jones Part one, Jeff, who's the founder and managing director of uh, Soft Tech VC, which is the, the premier seed stage investor in Silicon Valley, talks about getting into the game, uh, bootstrapping his way uh, by investing in a, in a number of investments using his own money to build a track record, build his personal brand, and connect with influencers to ultimately become the super angel of Silicon Valley. In part two, Jeff talks about the framework he uses to assess investment opportunities. He looks at, um, he talks about the characteristics of what he considers to be the ideal founder. A couple of flame out stories like fab.com and Homejoy, which uh, raised a lot of money and then flopped. Then we go a little bit into technology he's excited about, his perspective on today's tech industry, and finally his thoughts on the diversity or lack of diversity in tech and what he's personally doing to drive that change. Hope you enjoy the episode. Right. So you have this framework I've, I've heard you speak about called the three asses framework, yes. which I like because it's, it's pretty witty. Mm-hmm. Um, could you could you speak on that framework for folks? Sure. Well, it's sort of um, so it's um, um, a smart ass team building a kick ass product in a big ass market. <laughs> right. And we call it the three asses rule. Um, uh, I came up with it like a number of years ago, but it sort of summarizes what we said. And I would say to this day, we have the three asses rule, you know, uh, sort of a print like the one I have on the, on the wall, you know, you know, we're, um, um, you know, we're office. And we often refer to the framework to sort of figure out whether a company is actually um, a good fit for us. And now we've added a fourth, it's not a fourth ass, but there's also sort of the, the series A fundability of the company. Mm. So we, we look at founders, product, and market, and we have to sort of feel really good about those three components uh, for us to invest. So, you know, the founders always come first, and if we don't see that the founders have an opportunity to really build this kind of company, then, then we'll stop immediately. But if, like, a lot of my peers invest just on strong founders, like mm. awesome founders will sort of figure it out. And, you know, I respect that, which is different. If we, if we see awesome founders, but, you know, we don't, we just don't see that the product will be interesting or we don't believe in the market, then we'll pass. What specifically do you mean when you say awesome founder? You know, awesome founders is, is sort of a catch all. It's um, people who have this, this sort of unique um, vision, unique passion, have a unique ability to execute on an opportunity, have just this, you know, belief that the world is gonna, you know, change in a way that they can model and, and predict of sorts. And essentially, like, you know, when when Aaron Patzer, um, as a solo founder, solo employee of Mint, you know, pretty young dude, uh, sort of came and pitched me, I had, I had no doubt that the world he was depicting to me was gonna just shape up that way. Mm. And I, I was convinced and I, you know, I sort of wrote him a check uh, right there. Um, I mean, not right there, but kind of right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just see the see the future through the eyes of those entrepreneurs and, you know, the, the very best will sort of make you believe. Got it. So oftentimes I've noticed in the Valley, there is a kind of a mold where, you know, it's it's perceived to be a less risky bet. So let's say a Stanford dropout that's kind of like the rule the harvard dropout the zuckerberg 
in that situation, you have a really smart kid, obviously, because they got into the school they got into. Mm-hmm. They have a vision of the world, mm-hmm. but at that point, they haven't really built anything yet. No. So do you emphasize in that situation more the metrics and the traction of what they're building? Do you look at that profile itself and says, hey, this is prone to success, and you kind of tend to sway that way? Or do you tend to you know, go on the other side where you'd like to see a little bit more? So at the time when we backed Mint, there was there was nothing but a very, very ugly prototype that um, Aaron had built on his own. Um, I think we <clears throat> you just sort of look at how remarkable and smart and, um, you know, literate and decisive uh, sort of the, uh, the entrepreneur is. Um, like I said, we were reinvesting earlier. Uh, today, when, you know, I'm not sure we'd do Mint again, because Mint, when it came to us, had basically nothing. Um, and that's called now pre-seed, uh, whereas seed is really, okay, you know, we would invest in Mint for you know, the next round, potentially, right? Which is, uh, company has built uh, a bit of a um, uh, an advanced prototype, you know, we can play with, we have a little bit of people sort of in, in um, in the market sort of using it so we can look at a little bit of data um, the team would have uh, a couple of engineers like they would have found their VP of engineering or something like that so the, the, the pre-seed because seed is now so big right, right in terms of <clears throat> the space 275 funds have been uh, or more maybe 300 have been raised to just uh, cater to the, uh, the seed space um, you know, the volume of deals is such that it's no longer, you know, a few angels sort of collaborating to put together, you know, a 300K round, which was mm-hmm. what it was when I started. Like, we all were just uh, angels investing our own money at the beginning. Now, you know, uh, we look at two to three million dollar, right. you know, rounds that will syndicate, but the the funds that will invest will be, you know, so right now we have an $85 million fund, which used to be one of the largest in the industry. And now we have a few, you know, above $100 million, you know, seed funds that uh, that are very active. So it's really sort of changed. And people say, well, seed is the new Series A. And it's kind of true, right? So we've, <laughs> I sort of claim that whatever I do is seed. And therefore, you know, as I move along, you know, this is the seed it's world. It's seed. <laughs> um, and so you have pre-seed, you have post-seed, you have series A's and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the point is, you know, we've we've moved um, slightly sort of later stage with more data. So I would say, you know, we invest six to nine months later than we used to. So with the proliferation of, you know, other folks into the space, seed stage investors, mm-hmm. pre-seed investors, um, you had already established yourself as like the guy to go to if you're looking to raise uh, at that level. Has the proliferation protected or reinforced your moat? Would you say, or would you say it would it has deteriorated the moat given just the the sheer noise and number of folks kind of in, in this space? So I think you know it's it's a, it's a question we ask ourselves uh, you know pretty uh, pretty regularly, which is what are the awesome deals that we've just missed that we that we haven't seen. And what are the deals that we said no to? And, you know, we, we made a mistake uh, by doing that. And the, the latter is always very tricky because, you know, everything sort of looks good on paper up until such time where you get realization, like, you know, the company exits and then boom, you're like, oh, okay, that one was mm-hmm. like anti-portfolio, you know, uh, kind of anti-portfolio means, you know, this is a company you passed on and then became something huge. But... You know, recently we've just seen massive flameouts. 
So companies that were very successful, that were sort of the fastest growing companies, you know, in someone's portfolio until poof, like, you know, uh, we were investors in fab. So mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. even a question of pointing to someone else. Um, for the first couple of years, the growth was insane, right? The problem is that it was completely unsustainable, unsustainable insane. The other one which comes to mind is Homejoy. So before Homejoy existed, there was this company, Pathjoy, that I looked at and passed on. I mean, the founders were pretty smart, but I just didn't see. There, there was a micro-content monetization play. Right. And they pivoted into Homejoy, and suddenly Homejoy was this sort of monster. And I was like, damn, I missed the pivot. And, you know, you can't really blame yourself for missing a pivot because, by definition, what you would have invested in is not, you know, what is becoming successful. Right. And, you know, the company sort of grew, 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 and everyone was talking about it, and then, poof, you know, it just turns out that they were growing on an unsustainable sort of basis and unit economics just killed them. Yep. And so in this environment, it's very hard to call something, you know, an anti-portfolio item until it actually exits and you actually have hard, cold cash right. or public stock that really sort of, you can look at and go like, damn, I missed it. So to answer your question, um, we don't feel that we've really sort of missed on anything sort of major in the last, you know, three, four years as, as you know, our brand has grown, but the space has also sort of uh, grown a ton as well. Um, and, you know, we're very excited uh, with the portfolio we've built, with the co-investors that we've, uh, we've brought in. So we still, you know, 10 years later, work with our friends at First Round, with our friends at Floodgate, with our friends at True Ventures, with, you know, all the... My friends, the super angels who became very successful, uh, you right. know, micro VCs, we still sort of uh, collaborate with them in those sort of syndicates. It's just not the same nature of the deals where, you know, there were deals where like a ton of us were in Mint, right? And and now we're lucky if there's one and sometimes two, like um, recently we had a, a deal which we haven't announced yet, but it's basically Softech, uh, First Round and Felicis all together. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome. We're super happy to work with, you know, with our friends, but it's rare to be able to get those three very large, you know, sort of micro VCs in one deal. Aren't you guys physically located in the same building as well? I feel um, like I, I, when I walk past the sign... Felicis I'm and True are just upstairs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's a lot of communication. Actually, no, because we, we I spend, you know, time in, I, I sort of hide in this Palo Alto office, <laughs> uh, but I spend most of my time in San Francisco. So um, speak a little bit about how where you play, the space you're in, the dynamics have changed uh, with the rise of like accelerated, accelerator specifically, yep. mm -hmm. Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. so, so we talked about the pre-seed world, right? Which is really uh, ideation stage, uh, giving you 250, 500, 750K and uh, a few sort of great firms focusing on it. Um, Manu Kumar, K9, huge fan. My former partner, Charles Hudson, doing his own uh, firm, Precursor VC. So, you know, love what those guys are doing because they are sort of upstream from us and we sort of look at their deal flow. Accelerators, you know, uh, now um, YC is 10 years old, right? So, um, Techstars, we've been involved in at the very beginning. Uh, Whitefeld was a, um, a co-founder, and so he dragged us into Techstars as well. So those, like almost um, infrastructure uh, sort of uh, companies that really framed the the world of incubation, um, are also part of the ecosystem, and they're sort of upstream from us. And I would say, you know, we do out of the dozen deals that we do per year. 
I would say two, two to three on average will come uh, from some kind of accelerator incubator um, sort of uh, program. What's been interesting with YC in the last two or three batches is the fact that they've actually moved also, you know, to um, to be sort of slightly later stage. You see companies which have, you know, real products. I mean, you still have like the two founders who got together and, and you know, hacked something during YC and they show you the, the ridiculous sort of uh, growth curve right. with without any numbers that you don't know what, whether you're looking at month or days or weeks or years or whatever, Minutes. but it's always like a crazy graph with, and we're growing 30%, you know, uh, month to month or week to week or whatever. And everyone was sort of uh, lopsided because, uh, you know, it's easy to have that kind of, of graph. <laughs> but the point is, you know, there are, absolutely, uh, allegedly sort of uh, attracting awesome talent. And we pay attention to the programs because, and, you know, we try to do roughly one investment per batch, right? Um, so sort of looking at those. And they always sort of um, gather um, sort of entrepreneurs who don't have sometimes a, a traditional background, but give, you know, get a lot of value out of um, the, the YC program, get the rubber stamping of approval, and then, you know, off run into this craziness that uh, YC Demo Day uh, sort of represents. So for us, we pay attention. It's impossible to not pay attention. But at the same time, it's kind of a minor source of ordeal flow. Like, um, the rest is pretty much inbound. So people, um, and that's really the way to get our attention is get someone in your network who knows us to essentially use the credibility that, you know, they have with us on your behalf. Right. So, you know, if one over in, in one over entrepreneur says, Hey, you know, I have this friend, he's doing something interesting. I think you guys would enjoy meeting. Like we take the meeting, like, unless it's something competitive or we, in which case we would decline, you know, respectfully. Mm -hmm. um, or if it's something which is, you know, not in the geography or a space that we invest in, uh, then we'll absolutely sort of take the meaning because those guys, all entrepreneurs, know us the best. They know what we like. They know what how we operate. And if they say, this is an awesome opportunity. I mean, the, the wireless power company that we're uh, talking about, which is Steel Stealth, was referred to us uh, by James Park. And James, I think, has referred to me two startups in the, you know, eight years we've worked together. Mm -hmm. And this one, he said, it's fairly interesting. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> James Sparks sends me a deal and I'm says it's fairly interesting. I'm taking this meeting. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's uh, co-investors, it's entrepreneurs, um, execs who have worked in the portfolio. Um, surprisingly, uh, always very humbling is the number of awesome deals that were referred to us by entrepreneurs who we passed on. So we said no to them, but because they enjoyed the conversation and, and the relationship, however brief, you know, that was interesting, this sort of steal, uh, bring us opportunities. And sometimes we invest in them, which is always sort of awkward. Interesting. I, I say yeah. no to you, but I'll take that one. <laughs> so two, two premises in there. So the, the first thing I felt like I kind of heard was, um, the approach where some folks say, Hey, I'll invest in any company that comes out of YC. You say that you basically choose maybe one or two per class to invest in. So do if it comes down to founders, do you feel that YC screening process is robust enough where a strategy around just investing in whoever YC kind of has in a program makes sense? Um, so they, they attract like the top five or top 10 
you know, sort of startups of a YC batch will do extremely well. There's absolutely no doubt. The, the issue is figuring out which ones mm -hmm. are in the top five or top ten. Um, I wouldn't sort of go blind. I mean, it would be sort of interesting math to figure out whether you, if you blindly invested, you know, 10 grand in each company uh, of a YC batch, you would, you know, sort of outperform versus just, mm -hmm. you know, hand cherry pick one or two. Um, you would probably sort of do fine. I'm not sure whether you would do great. Um, but if you really sort of pick uh, some of the most interesting ones, and everyone has a different, you know, sort of interesting one notion. But I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, the last um, two or three years of West Investing, we've picked, you know, a bunch of really interesting companies. It's still early, but I'm really excited about the, uh, the potential. Got it. And then the second, I guess, follow-up question is, um, has YC or Accelerators created do you feel it's a good thing or a bad thing that they've created almost like a standard set of negotiating terms? Um, in a lot of ways, people could say like the power is now shifted to the entrepreneur in a lot of ways, whereas before, um, you know, there used to be a little bit more of a process where kind of VCs could individualize their approach with, with different startups. Do you feel as though, do you feel like that's true? And do you feel like that's a good thing if so? So it's it's true that they've commoditized the uh, the financing process by essentially bringing all the supply and the demand around the table and essentially unless you do your homework and you know invest pre YC demo day which you know they're trying to avoid a little bit because you know it's kind mm -hmm. of an unfair advantage but hey that's the game uh, and we certainly have done our fair share of that um, they basically put everyone you know together and just say hey you know um, supply the, uh, the 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 capital, you know, both angels and, and and VCs meet the demand, right? And you know, it's pretty much a a process they've tried to optimize, which is therefore very founder friendly because you know, if you access an opportunity and you have time to develop a relationship, people will say, well, you know, I'll work with you, and yeah, I will take a valuation which is blah as opposed to uh, something higher from someone else because All you right. will sort of add a ton of value. When you sort of have everyone see the opportunity at the same time, it's much harder because by definition, whoever sort of um, gets pulls the trigger first will sort of set, you know, evaluation and, and you keep on sort of hearing about overpriced YC, you know, companies and everyone says, well, what's going to be the YC, the average YC valuation of the batch? And at the end of the day, like, look, nothing forces anyone to invest at a crazy valuation. And, you know, we've certainly been conservative um, on, on valuations. And I think one of the, the recent... Um, potential uh, YC companies that uh, would join our entire portfolio is Gusto. Mm -hmm. So we were the first, um, the first term sheet on on Zen Payroll. Uh, huge fan of the team, and, and Josh is awesome. I've, I've known him for a long, long time. Josh Reeves, and you know we offered those terms, um, which we thought were pretty good and pretty aggressive. But they said, hey, you know we have a ton of interest and we're raising money at twenty pre, and we're like, fuck. Okay, uh, you guys want to run a payroll, we like you, but no, it's too expensive. And yeah. it's probably a big mistake that we made. But, you know, I can't say I regret it because having to draw the line and saying, right. I'm not going to invest that. Your strategy. Yeah. You know, and, and unfortunately, because of this lack of uh, rationality and discipline around uh, entry valuations, you know, 
our our job as VCs um, <coughs> is to return on a very consistent basis, you know, 45x fund. If we sort of return 45x funds, we'll be in business uh, forever. And if you lose one x, just because your entry price is you know two x what it used to be, because you know Truvio was a 17x because I invested at 2.5 pre. Truvio today, given given how awesome the founders were, would have been done at you know eight pre, and so. Um, that 17x would have become a 5x. Got it. Right? Yep. So, because the, on the other side, you know, MA isn't happening at, you know, at higher multiples. If anything, these days, when it's happening, it's not happening a lot. You know, multiples are actually down. Interesting. So, some of what you're talking about is kind of where we are right now in mm -hmm. terms of, of the market. <clears throat> From your perspective, where are we in the market? You mentioned that the space is getting really competitive as far as money in the scene. <clears throat> yep. Folks kind of coming in at every level from accelerators to proliferation of seed funds, et cetera. Um, that being said, the market itself, you're seeing a lot of kind of pressure on valuations downwards. What do you think what do you think is happening right now in the market? What are your thoughts on like what the rest of 2016 will look like? So I think um, people were really concerned coming out of 2015. Certainly the first couple of months of 2016 were pretty brutal. Like the public markets were really like uh, horrible with, you know, some companies like uh, LinkedIn or Tableau literally sort of having in terms of valuations because they had, you know, conservative sort of forecast, right? Um, and so the guidance that they gave, the, the street didn't like. So what we ended up seeing is a compression in the public markets in terms of public multiples, right? Um, sales multiples, earnings multiples. And, you know, we had all those sort of crazy unicorns, um, you know, 170 something, whatever, that were priced based on, you know, a belief that the multiples that you were paying in the private market would eventually sort of be matched in the public market. And just no way mm -hmm. that was going to happen. And, you know, the public multiples were much higher than they were. Mm -hmm. Then, then they are now. So suddenly, people sort of said, "Oh my God, what's happening?" A lot of those sort of unicorns are just not for real. Like, there's just no reality that can justify, you know, a one, five, ten, twenty-five billion dollar valuation for this thing based on the revenue and the growth and everything. Mm -hmm. So people sort of start looking at their portfolio going like, okay, what the hell do I have? Like, do I have a bunch of uh, paper returns? So I'm all sort of doing great, but if ever the company just doesn't work and wipes out, what does that mean? And we started seeing, you know, things like Guild, which was supposed to go public and then sold for a fraction of what they were worth. And, you know, sort of uh, a bunch of companies which had raised a bunch of money uh, that imploded and people sort of got very nervous. And then, you know, the public markets went, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to crap. And so that, that set off uh, 2016 on a very, very sort of dicey trajectory where everyone was sort of pulling back from the market saying, okay, I need to sort of check at my portfolio and figure out, you know, where am I on the um, on the curve of, okay, so I have great paper returns, but if ever this one and this one sort of blow up, then, you know, what am I looking at? Um, and everybody was pretty concerned. And I would say March and, and now April, um, it feels like it wasn't that bad. So the public markets sort of recovered. Um, we we heard that Q1 uh, 2016 was by far the most successful fundraising quarter for VCs. So mm. VCs have raised an unbelievable amount of, of capital. So it's 16 or 15 billion dollars. So basically, um, 
our uh, our uh, you know the the funds are in business and they have raised fresh capital, which means that they can deploy you know more capital for the next two three years because uh, these days the funds are raised and invested on a two to three year cycle, which is much faster than it used mm-hmm. to be, mm-hmm. um, and. Overall, we just continue seeing really interesting opportunities. Uh, and so for us, you know, the way we think about it is um, rain or shine, good market, bad market, you know, high valuations, low valuations, we invest three to five times a quarter and we'll be investing three to five times a quarter for the foreseeable future. And the thing that changes is what do we invest in? What kind of opportunities do we bet on? Um, like trying to, uh, like, you know, it comes and goes. Um, trying to get an on-demand company funded these days is tremendously uh, difficult because we're past, you know, the craze of on-demand companies. Mm -hmm. Like everything was on-demand, you know, uh, a year ago, two years ago, and tons of companies, uh, you know, were funded and candidly, they will all die. Mm -hmm. The same way there were tons of uh, uh, daily deals companies, uh, you know, being funded five, six years ago, and they they all died, right? Except for Groupon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to sort of figure out what are the things that are popular that, are, that you see and, and potentially sort of pass on. And for us, um, defensibility and uh, being sort of unique, so could be awkward, could be unusual, could be quirky, could, that all that is fine, but being like the 10th version of something we've seen, like when the uh, the parking startups uh, craze started, we literally saw five or six of them, you know, within three months of each other. Right, right. And, you know, we had love respect for the uh, Zerks team, but we just didn't believe in the scalability of the model. Right. So we'll right. see, jury's still out for Lux and Zerks, but uh, we don't feel bad about having literally outright passed on that um, on that trend. Um, we do, uh, you know, SaaS is probably the the brand butter of, of the firm. So 40, 50% of what we do is, is in SaaS, whether it's horizontal infrastructure, vertical SaaS, uh, the application stack, you know, developer tools. Uh, I brought my partner Andy, uh, who was a co-founder of Huddle, and a, and a great angel in in SaaS, you know, as a partner of the firm. Mm. And so, you know, he's he's really sort of focusing on that. But you know, my partner Steph and I also sort of do SaaS deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to focus my, myself. I tend to focus on connected hardware. So it's you know the post Fitbit uh, sort of era where I've done you know five five investments in hardware in the last year and a half. Um, some of them are still stealth, but I'm pretty excited by the potential of our portfolio. And those could, you know, it's wireless power, next generation, uh, air purification, uh, a um, pretty contrarian uh, virtual reality play, which is a uh, holographic display. So you mm-hmm. actually can consume uh, virtual reality content without wearing goggles. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be pretty cool. Um, so, you know, we'll see where those go. They tend to be you know, it's not capital efficient to invest in hardware still to this day, even if the, eco- the ecosystem has really evolved into uh, a very supporting one. Um, we still do marketplaces, um, you know, mix of B2B and B2C, a little bit of uh, media. Um, you know, my partner Steph is really sort of our education uh, tech specialist, and we've done uh, a few sort of awesome deals in the space, looking at... Um, healthcare tech uh, very fondly. We think it's uh, it's really sort of interesting space. Um, and like everyone, we're sort of uh, 
looking at AI, uh, more VR, uh, robotics, uh, things like that. Um, you know, artificial intelligence is sort of the, like it's it's bots everywhere. Mm-hmm. We actually uh, be concerned about that because everyone is budding and <laughs> like not not everything will be interesting in the space. But we've we've done two AI applied AI sort of investments. We're super excited about. So you know, we're trying to sort of we're trying to figure out what are the new technology platforms or technology advances that we can actually incorporate in um, in those uh, companies. The key thing for us though is that. When we invest, those companies have a couple, you know roughly eighteen to twenty-four months of runway to prove themselves right. that they're worthy of a Series A, and so there's there's a time gap that we're trying to uh, to fill with our investments and our support and our help to get the companies to uh, to the next round of financing, and that sort of limits, uh, in a sense, the kinds of opportunities we can uh, we can onboard because. If you go and try and, and you know uh, do something that won't be proven for for five years, unfortunately that won't be for us. Which is interesting because Fitbit, for example, is connected hardware. It was yep. a hardware company. Um, to a certain extent, that's a company where sometimes it'll take a year, two years to to get basically the technology perfected. You're holding inventory. You're mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out all the manufacturing supply chain pieces. But for you guys, it was it was a big a big success. So it's even in having like you know a clear mandate in terms of what you want to pursue it, i'm sure there's oftentimes attractive opportunities that even well, sure and you know you have you have um so we have a very clear investment strategy you can go on the web, our website uh, softtechvc.com and, <coughs> and see the uh, different sort of sectors in which we invest but then you have new areas which is basically you know we can invest in whatever the hell we want and, and right. we've been we've been uh, essentially entrusted by our limited partners the people who actually invest in us to come up with crazy things where like, um, you know, we, we invest in Hello Neuroscience, uh, which is this neurostimulation uh, device. It's basically neuropriming. So you send uh, microcurrent in uh, your uh, cerebral cortex in order to generate, you know, sort of new pathways and, and have a given uh, output or benefit. Wow. So the first product uh, is Hello Sport, which is essentially for athletes, a way for them to increase their muscular, uh, muscular reaction. Wow, and and it's proven. That, it's, that's, it's super, not, that's super high tech stuff. It's not something that is you know sort of um, uh, rocket science. It's it's been around uh, for for a while, but we're making the technology available as a consumer product, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we sort of mentioned that opportunity to the LPs, and we said, ah, you know, it's like neuroscience, and we're, and it's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you do what exactly? <laughs> You're putting surges into people's microcortex. Nah, I think that's was, what you said. <laughs> I, I, I sort of didn't see it that way, and but uh, the whole concept of neuropriming was was pretty, you know, uh, pretty new, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's up to uh, up to LPs to sort of say, well, we just trust the firm to come up with a portfolio, which you know we know we'll lose, you know, thirty to forty percent of the companies. Hopefully, we'll less we'll lose less than thirty or forty percent of the cash, but that's what's going to happen, right? Because right. you know, of of the forty-ish investments that we'll make, roughly, you know, right off the bat, that you know, fifteen up are going to go uh, kapoof, and it is what it is. Because if you don't have companies that that go boom, that means that you don't take enough risk. Got it. So, where I want to go, I guess, for the last part of the interview, how much time do you have? Uh, we have two, three minutes left. Okay. Um, if you can kind of leave some parting thoughts around um, where you think the valley is going in terms of um, 
diversity. So we, when I, when I saw you speak at a panel, there's mm-hmm. a lot of folks that are looking to break into VC. We talked about some of the ways and some of the tactics you deployed to do that yourself. Um, what do you believe is the case for diversity? Well, the, the two th- two thoughts. One is this is it's upon us um, to try and get you know to give people sort of a chance. I was very lucky that. You know, I was I was given a seat at the table when nothing really. So I was I was the ultimate outsider, um, and I, I, I sort of engineered my seat at the table. But nobody sort of prevented me from from taking it. All right, and so I'm very grateful for this. Um, we have you know, our our industry isn't diverse enough. We don't have enough. Uh, you know, we have gender issues. We have diversity issues. Um, I'm part of the diversity task force at the NVCA. So trying to sort of get more women, more diversity in the portfolio is something that um, we really want to see. I'm very, very happy that, you know, and it's a long journey, but at least in fund four, mostly or most a recent fund, 30% of the companies we've onboarded have a female co-founder. Uh, our track record today was 17%, which, you know, isn't too bad, you know, ideally it would be 50%. So we're sort of working there. Uh, what we need to work on is uh, minority founders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we typically work on an inbound basis. So everything sort of kind of comes to us. Mm-hmm. And clearly we don't have, and, and you know, Charles, my partner, is one of a few handful of African-American partners. And even with him on the team, we haven't seen, you know, sort of that many minority founders sort of coming to us. Whereas the fact that we have my partner, Steph, has really sort of uh, increased our deal flow of, of female founders. Mm-hmm. So we need to sort of be much more proactive. And that's why I was there, you know, at Toygo on a uh, on a Saturday uh, afternoon <laughs> to spend time with, with the... Um, with the teams to try and, you know, give them a sense of that that is possible and they should really sort of try. Because the, you know, the only real mistake is not trying, right? That's really sort of the one thing that um, I've tried to apply throughout my career. And, you know, nothing programmed me to do a startup in financial services. It just happened that, you know, I ended up taking an internship by sheer accident uh, in a in a brokerage firm that sort of got me to discover that really interesting world that led to the first startup. Nothing really sort of got me into VC was the desire to move to the US. And then this whole sort of trip down, you know, sort of the angel micro VC kind of opportunity wasn't sort of a super well engineered and, and in 10 years from now will be one of the leading firms in the space. It was, hey, there's an opportunity and there are sort of really good people and, you know, let's just, let's just try. And, and if ever it doesn't work, then we'll do something else. And so it's accepting that, you know, maybe you don't know what the next five to 10 years will be made, you know, will be made of, but the journey is worth taking. And, you know, we're, we're in a world where risk is really sort of accepted, if not rewarded. And so that's the one thing I would leave um, to you and your listeners is the only mistake that you really make is not taking and not trying. Got it. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the uh, the podcast. Um, I'll engage with you later to get you know uh, your blog, your social media accounts for the audience to follow if they want to hear more. It's easy. I'm Jeff. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much, Brendan. Take care. And that concludes part two of the Jeff Clavier episode of the Series B Show, hosted by me, Brandon Jones. Um, hope you enjoyed. You can go to the Series B Show's website, seriesb.co, S-E-R-I-E-S, 
cliffnotesbb.co to check out the cliff notes of the podcast as well as how you can contact Jeff uh, via social media. Um, hope you enjoyed and look forward to you tuning into the next episode of the Series B Show. Uh, always remember, be true, be you.